From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Welcome to What'd You Miss This Week. I'm Scarlett Fu. This podcast has the best and most interesting interviews from the Daily Market Closed show that I co-anchor with Joe Weisenthal, Caroline Hyde, and Romaine Bostic on Bloomberg Television, What'd You Miss? Our aim is to take you beyond the headlines and bring you unique perspective on the week's top stories and those you may just have missed. Politicians playing the game of brinkmanship. In the U.S., the partial government shutdown stretched into a fourth week over President Trump's border wall. And it wasn't the only country at a political impasse this week. The U.K. is in the middle of its own political Groundhog Day with Brexit. Theresa May's deal to exit the European Union was voted down decisively by Parliament, but she still managed to survive yet another confidence vote threatening her government's leadership. We talked with this trend of political brinkmanship with Tim Harford. He's a senior columnist at the FT. He's also author of The 50 Inventions That Shaped the Modern Economy. Well, I think we could at least uh, console ourselves that no long-range bombers are involved because brinkmanship was a word originally coined by Adlai Stevenson, who was running for president for the Democrats in the 1950s, um, as a criticism of his his Republican opponents. Just just this idea of pushing and pushing and pushing um, to the limit... Uh, in order to try to extract concessions um, from your opponents. And and we saw this several times during the Cold War, and and now we're seeing it in peacetime within both American and British democracy. Uh, I mean, what makes brinkmanship, I think, interesting um, from from an economist to analyze is that um, these are threats that it doesn't make any sense to carry the threats out. So there's a, there's a sense that they might be empty threats. Hmm. I mean, nobody really believes that Theresa May wants a, uh, a disruptive no-deal Brexit with um, six-day-long queues out of Dover. I mean, nobody really believes that Donald Trump wants um, the U.S. government to be shut down for months. And, and so the, the trouble is for these politicians to, to try to make their threats seem credible. And there, there are a few different ways they can do that, but it doesn't always work. Indeed, you outline them being the doomsday machine, a sort of a date that we seem to lurch towards as March the 29th might be for Brexit, the madman strategy, which some might feel that both sides of the equation could work in the US and the UK, and create a risk of an accident. Tim, what about the risk of an accident when it comes to either shutdown in the US or indeed Brexit right now? Because interestingly, the markets don't seem to be too worried about that. We are seeing the great British pound rally back. It seems to be pricing in these concerns. And indeed, the US seems to be shrugging off shutdown. 
Yes, although I think the, the pound uh, was falling all day and then bounced back. I haven't seen the very latest, but I'm, I'm not sure it's any higher than it was at the beginning of the day. So you, you never know quite what's what's priced in. But yes, the risk of an accident. I mean, this it, it, it's always possible when you get into a complex situation, lots of moving parts, as the big Lebowski once said, a lot of ins, a lot of outs, a lot of what have you. And you never know when somebody might miscalculate, somebody might push things too far, you just run out of time. Um, and then um, things get quite nasty. And it, it, the, the great economist Thomas Schelling, who won the Nobel Memorial Prize and who analyzed these kinds of situations, he once compared it to... Um, they said it's like handcuffing yourself to your opponent. Mm. You're trying to get a concession from your opponent. You handcuff yourself to him or her, yeah. and then you, you just dance up and down on the brink of a cliff. With the partial government shutdown at record length, it's not just federal bureaucrats who are feeling the pain. The closure is weighing on big agriculture. The U.S. Department of Agriculture did not release its WASDE report last Friday, which estimates supply and demand for crops and is closely watched by the industry. Now the private sector is trying to fill that gap with some forecasts of its own. Grow Intelligence, which is a data and analytics firm, released its own version of the USDA report. We spoke with the firm founder and CEO, Sarah Menker. She's a former vice president for Morgan Stanley's Commodities Group, ahead of its big release. And a lot of um, payouts actually in the financial services industry also occur based off the final yield and production numbers that are reported in January. So it could have implications for insurance payout to farmers. And that then is tied to what, how much money farmers have in the bank to determine what they're going to plant the next season, right? So this could have roll-on effects, not just for the previous season, but for the next season as well. So tell us about what you do and how in the absence of official public sector USDA data, people who need to know this stuff can get a feel on plantings and so forth. So um, we're a data and analytics company focused on all things agriculture globally. And what we've done is we've built a data platform that ingests over, at this point, 40 million unique data sets that are related to global agriculture in any way. Um, that amass to over 500 trillion data points that's linked to agriculture. And so what we've done is we've basically leveraged that to build a predictive engine um, using a series of machine learning algorithms to build our own forecast models. Mm. And so when the government shutdown occurred, the first thing that we did was say, you know what, we should provide free access to data because a lot of databases were going down, some numbers were not updating, and we knew that we had access to all sorts of data sets that were being reported from other parts of the world that could help fill the gap. Sarah, it's interesting because you're using, what is it, NASA, you're using customers' data in Portuguese from Brazil. These are niche sets of data that perhaps, you know, far more fulfilling than what the USDA provides. I mean, does it tend to align completely what the USDA gives, and, or is it even more? There, um, it's, it's definitely a lot more. Uh, but they're also very complementary, okay. right? So what the USDA gives, obviously, is strongest for the U.S., but what WASDI does is it does a really good job of taking and aggregating all of these national-level statistics and creating a global balance sheet, right? So giving you a world view of it. And one of the challenges of doing that for any normal person is the best data out of China comes in Mandarin. It's reported in PDF files, and Brazil is in Portuguese, and you know, Argentina is in Spanish. And so what we built is this technology that automatically harnesses that, which is why we're able to automate the process. Uh, but also, in, you know, in the, in the case of forecasting things like production and supply, 
um, our models at times actually do do better uh, because we have real-time information that's coming from satellite imagery that updates every single day as opposed to waiting once a month, right? So you have these real-time, automated, very transparent models that can do that. So since the shutdown, have you seen an increase in, in people coming to you and, and asking more for your data? Absolutely. I mean, um, like, like I mentioned, the first thing that we did um, uh, with the shutdown was just offer our platform for free. Right. Um, and by doing that, that obviously attracted a large number of commercial and public sector users mm-hmm. to come and access and pull the data sets. Um, and now with us announcing that we will publish an alternative to the WASD, um, we've seen an even bigger increase because that is a critical report. It's a market-moving report. We know that in recent years there's been an incredible surge in interest in alternative data sets, whether it's satellites or credit card data or anything else, from agriculture to other areas as well. Has this diminished the importance of Mm. the monthly report? in any category in terms of the market impact because so much of it is can be kind of anticipated and it's proving less surprised to where the market was right before? I mean, I think that's why we exist as a company, right? We believe good, consistent, transparent information systems make markets more stable. Yeah. Um, and, to, and, and this is really at a global scale, right? So you have um, agencies like the USDA that are well-funded in the U.S., but many parts of the world don't have that much funding. And so in the absence of that much funding, can you build can you leverage technology and systems to build predictive models for India, for Tanzania, for China, which is what we're doing, right? So, so the power is that does it, you know, it becomes highly complementary to it. And I think what it does is it starts to repurpose potentially how some of these reports are generated and how some of these agencies go about generating these reports. China and the U.S. take one step forward and one step back. China confirmed that Vice Premier Liu He will be traveling to Washington later this month for another round of trade talks. But the news broke just as headlines crossed about Huawei. The U.S. has been trying to make the case for years now. Huawei is a threat to national security. Now the Chinese telecommunications giant is said to be the target of an advanced federal probe by U.S. investigators for allegedly stealing trade secrets from partners such as T-Mobile. We talked about the news as it broke with Max Baucus. He was the former U.S. ambassador to China during the Obama administration. We began by asking if he was surprised by the news of the probe. No. Um, um, our U.S. government has been looking at Huawei very aggressively in the last um, oh, couple, three years. And it's, it's reached fruition, I mean, fulfillment, to the point where not only... Uh, if we ask Canada to detain the, the CFO of Huawei in uh, Vancouver, but I'm not surprised to see other actions forthcoming. It's happening. It's happening. How does this affect the all-important U.S.-China trade discussions? Because obviously you've got the president's team working with right. China, hoping to strike some kind of trade deal, and you've right. got this going on in the background. Right. I, I think that from the Chinese perspective, they like to separate the two. China wants a deal. Uh, China's economy is going south. They're, they're in a world of hurt. Um, and the United States, frankly, is not doing that great either because some of the ramifications are hitting our country. I think it's a decent chance there'll be a deal. But both countries, especially China, would like to separate the two, get some kind of agreement, get that out of the way, and then deal with, although it's going to be very complicated, it's going to be very, almost it'll take a long time, deal with uh, national security issues we have with China, including Huawei, you know, cyber, it can be, you know, South China Sea, you name it, and that, 
China wants to do that, deal with that separately. How does China interpret the United States? Because in particular, how do they interpret President Trump? Because he's used corporations, yeah. he used ZTE in the past to be some sort of bargaining Yeah, chip. the Chinese I talk to, and I keep in pretty close touch. I go over there a couple, every other month, and I talked to some others a few days ago. They say they can't trust Trump. That is, they, it's hard for them to reach a deal with Trump because he changes his mind. And it just it makes it difficult. It makes it hard. It makes it difficult to develop trust. It's, they just have to deal with that. They want to deal, but they want to deal with somebody they can trust. If they want to deal, but they can't address some of the issues that the Huawei case brings up, and you've also got cybersecurity and national security in a separate bucket, what can really be accomplished in any kind of deal that the two sides are so eager to strike? I mean, it's going to be pretty surfacey in what we're going to talk about soybean exports. Uh, well, if they buy more soybeans, that'd be great. <laughs> and if they buy more American products, that'd be great too. There will be some discussion about IP protection. And, and there'll be some discussion. Concrete outcome. Um, well, and some discussion about uh, um, oh, forest technology transfer. You put your finger on a real good point. Namely, we in the past get concessions from China, but they're just words, you know, by and large. That was my experience when I was ambassador over there. So in this case, there'll be a major effort to try to get some specifics, some benchmarks, some way to, to indicate the degree to which China is living up to their words. Mm-hmm. That's going to be difficult for China to agree to. They, they'll do a little of that, but they play the long game. They've, the Chinese have a long vision of the future. It's not the short game like Americans. It's a long game. Talking about a long game, game at the moment being played in Washington, and the shutdown <laughs> too is long. now. Yeah, too long. Twenty-six days. Yeah. Your expertise is such that you were on the House Senate Committee on Agriculture as well. You're mentioning soybeans. You're the Select Committee on Deficit Reduction. You know not only the House, you know the Senate. Are we going to get any bipartisanship here at the moment? We're starting to see signs of it. There will be a deal when the pain just gets too great. On. Um, House members, on senators, and on the president. And we're getting close to that point. People are, I think, getting pretty uh, restless and kind of fed up with all this. And the second main point here is Senate Republicans, um, the pressure they're feeling. And don't forget, their primary allegiance, when they took an oath of office to support the Constitution, is the people in their home state. Mm-hmm. Their, their voters are their employers, not President Trump. And so the Republican senators are going to think, oh, there's going to come a point where, you know, I got to look at my whole card, and that's my state, and, um, and say, sorry, Mr. President, we just can't keep moving here. We, we, we can't go along with, with your failure to compromise. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, The promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, Top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. It was also a big week for earnings from the big banks. On Wednesday, Goldman's shares jumped in early trading after surprising investors with fourth quarter results that beat estimates in both EPS and revenue. The news lifted shares of banks across the board. We talked through the results with Devin Ryan, 
He's a senior research analyst at JMP Securities. And we began by asking just how important these numbers were, or if the focus was more about what they hinted about the future. It's absolutely about the future, and, and it's actually funny. We've been out seeing investors the last uh, couple weeks, and, and the big question was, does it matter? You know, we, we all knew that the fourth quarter was going to be very difficult. I think uh, the expectation was that December did get worse for trading as it went, so we have seen some weaker numbers there. But, but really the key thing is, does the tone change at all? Are, are companies kind of talking down growth? Are they concerned about uh, the economy? Is the consumer changing? Is, is corporate confidence shifting? And you know, what we've heard thus far is... Uh, actually pretty constructive. And the reality is global growth is slowing a bit and the market's been recalibrating to that. And I think financials, uh, which are kind of a leading indicator for that, um, have probably been oversold. And I think there were some technical elements that uh, exacerbated that into the year end. So that was kind of our view that year end, you had massive institutional deleveraging. You had retail investors deleveraging. You saw that in margin balances coming down at Schwab when they reported this morning. So uh, a lot of tax loss selling. So it was really the perfect storm for selling financials into year end. Uh, our view was we should get a recovery at the beginning of this year, probably 10 to 20 percent. We're up about 10 percent in financials to start the year. So we're kind of getting to that range. But uh, we, we do think that we were oversold and it was more getting the fourth quarter out of the way. All right. So it's investors turning the page. They're also turning the page when it comes to how Goldman is being portrayed and how it's being represented, because David Solomon, the new CEO, hosted the conference call, the earnings conference call for the first time. He also mentioned 1MDB, talked about it in, in, in a great length. What did you learn from that and how does it set the tone for what investors can expect from Goldman? Sure. So I think a key thing that's changing here is, as you mentioned with David and kind of the new management team, is really increasing the level of transparency that they're giving the market and investors and having David on the, the earnings call, I think, uh, speaks to that. Uh, they gave some additional detail uh, with earnings that they've never given before. And I think the investors that we spoke with this morning uh, really welcome that. It just gives the sense that they're being more open uh, and they're, they're, they want to help with transparency. And so with 1MDB specifically, there's only so much that they can say this is an ongoing um, you know, situation. But I think they were very clear that they have their position around uh, you know, what they did in the situation, I think, are taking some liability for that. Uh, but also uh, believe on the other side that um, uh, you know, maybe the perceptions around uh, what they did are maybe not all accurate. So uh, they did take some charges in the quarter related to it. Uh, I think there will likely be more going forward. Getting it out of the way, it, it really a big catalyst for this, the market. A lot of investors that I talk to uh, have had some concern that it's just hard to quantify. So I've got a lot of cheap financials to look at. Uh, I think today people are realizing that Goldman's been pretty cheap here. And so uh, when you generate a 13% return on equity and you're trading at 90% of book value, uh, maybe that's enough. Maybe one MDB is uh, largely in the stock. Mm. So it's priced in. Devin, I'm interested in how we can move forward when the dislocations that we saw in, four, in the fourth quarter could they be repeated in any way from your mind's eye? Is there any lessons actually being learned by the banks? Is there any way they, they can diversify or indeed hedge this sort of over-reliance on FIC and therefore the concerns that have to be priced in? Yeah, it's a great question. I think we actually have to have some perspective here. So if you took this environment that we've been in the last three months and took it back 10 years, I think results would have been a lot worse than they were in the fourth quarter. So uh, you had leverage that was three times where it is today. And so we kind of just went through a real-life stress test. The S&P uh, went down 14%. High-yield spreads uh, blew out pretty good. And that, that's a pretty stress environment. And uh, not to say that the quarter was, was great. It was a difficult quarter. But you know, Goldman 
Goldman Sachs still generated a, a 12% return on equity, a 13% return on equity on the year. A lot of the banks did the same thing. So uh, I do think that the market is more fragile today coming off of the past uh, few months. The global economy is slowing, so we're trying to calibrate to, to what degree um, that is. Um, but I think we just saw that the financial system can withstand some pretty severe shocks and, and dislocations in financial markets and, uh, markets and absorb it pretty well. This week, we lost the patron saint of investing, Vanguard founder Jack Bogle. The index fund pioneer passed away at the age of 89. Throughout his life, he insisted that most stock-picking money managers weren't worth the fees they charged, and he was hailed as a hero for American investors by Warren Buffett. Bloomberg opinion columnist Nir Kesar wrote about how Bogle showed that enriching lives goes past accumulating wealth, and he talked about his piece with us. It's quite a legacy. It's a sad day. Uh, you know, we've, we've, the financial industry has lost uh, a legend. Investors have lost, you know, probably their best advocate. Um, and as you say, he, you know, what, what he did, I think, is hard to understand today because we're so far removed from, from the 1970s and what investing was like back then. But, you know, imagine cobbling a portfolio of individual stocks, you know, almost at random. And here's a guy who comes along and says, hey, just own as many stocks as you can that represent presents the broad swath of the market and just leave it alone. Pay as little as possible. Never look at it again. And when you wake up in 50 years, you'll be rich. Uh, That was a revolutionary idea. We take it for granted now, but that that sounded revolutionary in those days. I'm sure of it. Yeah. In other words, buy the haystack rather than looking for the needle in the haystack. And what also was revolutionary about him to a certain extent was the way in which he shared the profitability. And and there's a great quote. There's a great story on the Bloomberg, in fact, uh, near talking about some of the legends he's known. And we spoke with none other than Jeremy Grantham of GMO co-founder. And he said what he meant to most people in the investment business was that he was a royal pain in the bottom. In the world where increasingly everyone is trying to maximize short-term profits, he was a complete outlier. He was more concerned about the long-term benefits for society. There were so few in that group. And he was the patron saint. Talk to us about the way in which he sort of forced Wall Street and investors to rethink the way in which they charge, but also the way in which they share profit. Yeah, I think he's going to become a bigger pain in the bottom, is my suspicion. <laughs> and, and, and the reason I say that is I, there's a second legacy for, for Bogle that we haven't, I think, fully explored and that I think will come to light as time goes by. And that is he made another revolutionary decision when he started Vanguard, which is to say he decided that his investors were going to be the owners of the company. And that was going to allow him to give them the services, Vanguard services at cost. And... That hasn't been widely adopted, or maybe at all adopted, but now now that we're in this place where there's huge wealth disparity, where there's a lot of dissatisfaction with corporations, the decisions they're making, and the wealth gap in general, I think more people are going to ask, wait, why can't more companies be set up in the Vanguard mold across industries. I mean, why can't healthcare be delivered at cost? Why can't other industries be delivered, uh, other services in industries be delivered at cost? And that's not a question that we've asked yet, but I think, you know, his passing gives us the opening to ask that question, and I think it's going to be asked, and I think we will look back at Bogle and say, he was the, he was the one. He was the one who started this all. 
He started this law, and of course, he um, had to limit his wealth creation as a result. He was only worth $80 million as opposed to being a billionaire uh, like uh, the heads of other asset management companies. Nir, was he ostracized because of his insistence uh, to share some of that wealth creation, share some of that profitability, or did he kind of keep that to himself? I mean, did he isolate himself? Did anyone in the fund industry adopt and buy into his way of thinking? You know, not as far as I can tell. It's very difficult to know with Bogle because uh, it's hard to separate. You know, he was a fierce critic, as you know, of the financial services industry in general, and he was not shy about that. And anytime you're outspoken and anytime that you expose the warts, you're obviously not going to have a lot of friends. He was deeply admired, I think, all around. And we're seeing that today. We saw that yesterday. Uh, But to the extent that he was a loner, so to speak, uh, it's hard to know whether that was because he was implicitly saying, hey, everyone else is overpaid and this is really the way it should work Um, or whether it was just a matter of you know putting out products that investors liked that and and he and that thereby he was taking market market share from his competitors it's hard to separate those two things that does it for this episode of what you missed this week if you like this please make sure to subscribe and rate us at apple podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts And be sure to tune in to our Market Close show every weekday from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg Television and from 4 to 5 p.m. streaming on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.